We're all set to, uh, and Phil, thank you for your help. Okay, so the subject we want to deal with, and, um, you know, I'm um, uh, looking forward to Chris putting a perspective on this next week. Um, how far it goes, how far the rabbit hole goes, I don't know. It might be just a, a two-weeker. But it's around the very inter- interesting question of where does Jesus fit? Because once you start getting a wider perspective of the reach of grace and uh, less of a context of all these people are out and a few people are in and uh, more of a context of we actually think that what Jesus did worked and, uh, and that, um, you know, what, what Adam gave us as a legacy, Jesus has given us a greater legacy. And uh, if Adam's legacy, by the claim of some, touched all men, then for Christ to be greater, his legacy has to not only touch all men living now, but it has to touch all men who've ever lived and all, all men and women, because I say men, humanity, who will ever live. So, of course, the big question that comes up, and some of you have raised this question, is... If we are not focusing on just this thing that we're sinners, we're going to hell, we need Jesus to save us from the wrath of God because we deserve judgment and to open heaven to us so we can go to heaven, which is a few words summary. If, if that's not the context, the question is then where does Jesus fit? So I want to put you my two penneth in tonight. Um, I can't cover everything and I can't follow every trail so um, it will be it will be heavier on comment than it is on on quoted scripture or read scripture that doesn't mean there isn't scripture that can go with this but but I don't want to overburden you with all the technical little details you can ask questions we can point you in the right direction if you want to but I'm more interested in getting across to you uh, an understanding for me of where Jesus fits And uh, in my answering of this question, I want primarily to focus on the cross and what that means to me. There are perspectives on Jesus that say that actually he just came to be our example of of non-violent response to the violence of the world. That's one perspective some people have. Um, But for me, uh, I see the cross as something more than just um, wicked people who didn't like Jesus contradicting their, their religious beliefs and their politics. I, I think the cross is more than just a non-violent acceptance of a violent society under the Romans. I think there's something more to it. And so I want to deal with that a little bit tonight. Now, of course, once you start to talk about the cross, that this invariably involves sacrifice and death and blood. And um, yeah, that itself is, a, is an interesting thing. I, I, I was never raised to, to turn a hair at the whole concept of that because um, where I wouldn't say I was raised in a fully fundamental home or environment, uh, I would still have to say that, that God was loving but violent. He was, he was kind but judgmental. Um, he wanted to be loved but really... If you looked at the scenario, he should be feared. Uh, and that, you know, because God was so, you know, first I believe God turned his back on us because of our sin. 
And then God hated sin so much, was so angry with sin that he had no option but to judge us and to judge us severely and violently, which of course that judgment in what I was raised in meant eternal conscious torment, you know, uh, um, punishment in hell forever and ever and ever, which wouldn't you have thought, just as a side issue, that if that was the consequence of what we believe sin to be, i.e. Adam and Eve making the wrong choice, and being separated from God, that Genesis would say stuff about going to hell if you don't believe, when actually it's not mentioned. It's, it's just not there. Paul never mentions hell. So, so there is already um, uh, an induced problem that has been read into the context to support a viewpoint. And what we're trying to do is remove some of those things to say, Chris and I might tell you some different things, but we want you to have all the information so that you can have a look and evaluate and say, what does Jesus mean to me? Who is Jesus to me? What, what, how does he, where does he fit in the context of what I understand? And so, and so I come from that, that background. And of course, um, the problem is that because the cross involves sacrifice and death and blood, um, I was going to say it was a godsend to people who want to present this um, legalistic, um, God who, who is an enforcer of the rules, which as we've said already to you many times, that, that, um, that if, if Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God, then Jesus wasn't dying to save us from sin, he was dying to save us from God. So God made humanity with the capacity to sin, only for him having to kill himself to save us from his own anger, that wasn't our fault in the first place because he created the scenario in which that anger was to come. Can you see how a lot of these things, when you really are allowed to look at them, don't make sense? Now, uh, if, if I have a criticism of the way that I was raised is that I was not exposed to alternative views. I was not given access to contradictory thought. Um, and, I mean, maybe, maybe it was perceived that we were too thick to consider those things and come up with the right solution. Um, part of the truth is that we simply, we simply engaged in a process that we tried to break back in the Reformation when the Bible was not in the language of the people and you were not permitted to read the Bible. Only the priest could read the Bible and the priest always preached in Latin so you couldn't understand what he said. So because you weren't allowed to evaluate for yourself what was truth or not truth, what was a good interpretation, a bad interpretation. Now, the problem is when in, when in the process of teaching within church context, uh, we only ever push without, without question one point of view. We're actually doing the same things that the Reformation tried to stop. We're saying you can only have access to this information because if you have access to anything else, you'll be able to think for yourselves. Well, our thing is we want you to think for yourselves. And if God can't stand up to that kind of examination, and if the gospel doesn't come through with some clarity, then that's not my fault. It really doesn't, he, him, it, and the Bible do not deserve to be followed if they can't stand up to that kind of scrutiny. So, so hence the reason we wanted to just bring our own perspectives on, on this subject. So, so, if we're looking at the cross, it involves sacrifice and death and blood. Now, one cannot deny that blood and sacrifice played a major part in civilization's religious practices in the ancient world. 
I don't care who you are, it's just true. Sacrifice and blood were at the centre of every religion and every religious practice going back into the ancient world. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about 100 years ago, 200 years ago. I'm talking about four, 6,000 years ago and, and the rest in ancient civilizations like Mesopotamia and, and Egypt and, and Assyria and, um, uh, and, and Acadia and all of those places. Uh, throughout history, when you look at history, you'll see that sacrifice and blood have played a major part in, in, in religion and civilization since those times. Now, the question is, why was it, what was, why is that the case? And what was it about those two things, along with death, because of course, sacrifice and blood, you need death anyway. What was it, along with those two things, uh, along with death, that was so important to them? Because you won't read that there was this massive upsurge of people who were saying, we don't want sacrifice and blood and death. It's just not there. It was, a, it was an embraced and supported ideal within ancient society. Now, one reason was the belief that this appeased the anger of the gods. So they couldn't move away from it because they believed that the gods were angry and to appease the anger of the gods you needed sacrifice and you needed blood. So therefore, for humanity to stay at least on the right side to a degree with the gods, you had to have blood and you had to have sacrifice. Another was that the gods feed on the blood of sacrifice and so maintain their strength. Now that might sound silly to us today, but that was a, a widely held belief in ancient times that when you offered blood, the, good, the gods fed on that blood and that blood gave them strength. Um, if you want good examples of that, then you can check all these out on the wider context. Um, you know, obviously, two days of thought can't be condensed into, into an hour of talk. Um, but you can look at all kinds of societies from the ancient Incas, that was a thing there with the Incas, that the blood of sacrifice strengthened the gods. Uh, so you can go back and look at these things yourself and see, just check out what part did blood play in, in, in uh, ancient religions. Another was that life and vitality would flow out to you from the blood of the sacrifice. In that one, virgins were always preferred because it was considered that the blood of a virgin carried within it greater purity and therefore would come through that purity would come greater strength from the from from the sacrifice to you so sacrificing a virgin meant that there would come back on you a purer blessing all of these things were part of of why they found blood and sacrifice to be important to them now i could give you many more examples but but i won't um, so the conclusion the conclusion of that is that Death, blood and sacrifice were a trading commodity in the cosmic order with the gods, either to avoid their punishment or to give them pleasure in the hope of receiving help and favour. So, you have to think of blood and sacrifice as a trading commodity. You did it for a reason. It wasn't just that you thought, well, the nice thing is we can just kill anybody we want, we'll call it a sacrifice. No, there were still rules, there was still law, but, but the real issue was that, that it, was, it was understood that sacrifice and blood were a trading commodity. So if you were going to deal with the gods, 
You needed sacrifice and blood. If you were going to be blessed and favoured, you needed sacrifice and blood. That was the commodity in which you traded in the cosmic realm. Now transfer that idea into Christianity. And you'll see how certain conclusions have been drawn by interpreting the story through that lens of understanding. So Christianity has become no different. Sacrifice and blood will appease the gods. Sacrifice and blood will give the gods pleasure and therefore we will receive help and we will receive advice. And so in Christianity, blood and sacrifice have become just as much a trading commodity and in one sense you could say maybe rightly so, we haven't haven't decided yet whether right or not, But the problem is, if that commodity is used in the same way that ancient religions used it, you see how we have shaped the gospel to accommodate exactly the same mindset in the context of the gods, humanity, appeasement of anger and blessing. Now, I would propose to you just on that case alone that something ain't right. Something doesn't work. Because we are, in that case, being asked to support something that we say is unique because God sent his son and actually the whole premise of it is deeply rooted in ancient historic religious rituals, even in the context and down to the issue of if Jesus was a child sacrificed by God, then that is a very pagan thing to do in the context of trying to understand how you deal with the gods. There are huge problems for me, being very honest, with the wider context of how I had what it meant, all this about Jesus and the cross, in the world and in the gospel and to me. So, in the light of this, this would be my question. Are our theories of redemption rooted in Jesus or have we clearly and firmly rooted Jesus within our theories of redemption? Did you get that? Shall I say that again? Are our theories of redemption rooted in Jesus? Or have we clearly and firmly rooted Jesus within our theories of redemption? I propose to you that the latter is actually sadly, but honestly, the case. That we have been influenced by ancient theories of redemption, of how blood and sacrifice works... And we have translated Jesus into those theories and made those theories fit and then called that the gospel. So our God is still as picky and as angry and as fussy and as judgmental as any God ever in history. And he is only appeased if he gets the right kind of sacrifice in the right kind of way by the right people. Do you see how this, there's a problem? So I've had to ask the question in the context then of me no longer believing that that is the model Where does Jesus fit? Because I don't want to put Jesus into a theory of redemption. I want my theory of redemption to be rooted in Jesus, which gives us a very different aspect, even in the context of one very simple thing. Jesus said, love and forgive your enemies. And then if we believe the gospel it was preached, God doesn't love his enemies enough to forgive them and preserve them from going to eternal conscious torment. Now that's, that's... That's the biggest contradiction. You would have to say then Jesus and God are two different people. Because you can't have Jesus saying, love your enemies and forgive. And God saying, I hate my enemies and I will not forgive. I'll punish them forever. You can't have Jesus saying, turn the other cheek and give two cloaks. 
And God's saying, if you haven't decided this by the day that you die, you have no more opportunity and you're going into eternal conscious torment. Can you see, even just thinking about this rationally, how there are big problems if we try and interpret it through that model and the problem comes because we have translated into our belief these ancient pagan concepts of what their gods were like and just tried to make our God better. Now, of course, again, we can't get into this argument, but, you know, uh, we say that we believe that there is one God. And then people sing songs like, our God is bigger, our God is greater, our God is stronger than any other. Well, that's, that's, you can't even sing that song if there are no others because it makes no sense. So it says that we have a confusion. I'll tell you where the confusion comes from because in the desire to evaluate the spiritual realm, for most people, the devil is an equal and opposite power to God in heaven and there is this, somehow there's this war going on between these things called demons and the devil and God and his angels and many of those things are superimpositions again from ancient history that have been brought into the story and introduced as people have learned about them. Even what the children of Israel learned as they were captive in Babylon and, and, and captive by the Assyrians, they brought ideas back from there which then suddenly we find cropping up in their writings. Now, I don't blame them for that because when we have experiences and we write about our experiences, what we have experienced shows up in our writing. So I, I don't have any problem with that, even in Scripture, that that is happening. The issue is you have to recognise that that is what's happening, okay? So this is where I see a distinction in the Bible narrative separating itself from the common understanding, because you might think by all that, that what I'm doing is rubbishing off or denying the Bible when I say absolutely I am not. I have a very high regard for Scripture. I have a high enough regard for it to allow it to be what it is. Uh, and to not impose pressures upon it that, that have been imposed by the religious community that are unfortunate. So, yeah, I mean, online, I don't care. I, I don't believe the, that the Bible as we have it is inerrant. And uh, I don't believe that the Bible that we have it is, what's the other word? It's the, infallible. what? Infallible, thank you. I don't believe it's infallible and I don't believe it's inherent. And I don't believe the Bible ever says that we have to believe that it's infallible or inherent. It's written by these people and it gives us instruction. The issue with the Bible is that within all this stuff that people are writing, there is this most mystical, amazing, incredible, ridiculous connection of a story that goes from Genesis through to Revelation, that if you can find that within the story, you understand what the story is. Now, of course, it's a bit like you might say with me on a night like this, well, why didn't Nance just say what he meant instead of all that fluff that goes around it? And you might be right to say so. The issue is, why does the Bible have to say some of that fluff that goes around it? It's because these people were people on a journey, conversing out what they'd seen. But within there, within that, there is, you know, what I call a golden thread. So, so I see distinction in the Bible narrative that separates itself from this common understanding about sacrifice and blood. 
It's where I see the ancient understanding of blood and sacrifice plays a major part in conveying to an ancient culture and so to us the true attributes of the ungodlike God. We've got to remember if you're going to speak to a culture, you speak with things that that culture holds dear so that that culture will be able to take into account what you're saying and in full understanding see that this is different. So that's why right from the beginning, sacrifice and blood show up in the biblical writings because sacrifice and blood are a common currency in the context of people's journey in looking for God. Now you might say, but why does it show up so early in Genesis when that's actually the very beginning? The question is, the beginning of what? It's the beginning of a compilation of books that use the formation of a nation that would ultimately be Israel out of the Hebrews to bring us a story that helps us to understand something of the God who becomes the Word made flesh. I'll say to you again, Genesis chapter 1 has got pretty much nothing to do with how the earth was made. And it's got everything to do with why the earth was made. It's not seven days of putting stuff together. It's seven days of showing how you go from chaos and darkness and disorder to wholeness and life and peace and rest. It's, it, it's, a, it's a model. It's a model that's saying something in, in ancient terms. Now, of course, the issue is um, creation stories are to a penny. I didn't know this when I was growing up. It bothered me for a long time because, you know, we think, well, there's this story of creation. God made the world. And then there's all those other liars out there. Um, you know, it was interesting in, in Canada. The Indians in the west of Canada um, believed that the earth was formed out of a clamshell. And, uh, and that human, human beings were put inside the clam and when the clam opened, that's when human beings came out. And so the earth, like an oyster, came out of a clamshell. And it's like, well, that's really stupid. Not, not if you were an Indian from there, it wasn't, because the idea was to try and explain to you in your culture that everything and everyone comes from something and somewhere and the issue is not where they came from, but why they came. And the story of the Bible is not about a load of legalistic things. It's about the why of life. It's about the why of God. It's about the why of the universe. And when we look beyond some of the stories and, say, and start saying, oh, you know, the children of Israel killed a whole village of men, women, and children. And ask the question, why would they want to write that they killed a whole village of men, women, and children? See, if you ask the why, you understand, because culturally, every nation was, was, was at risk. Every tribe was under threat from the next tribe down the road. Empires were growing. Tribes were expanding their territory. The best way to stop that was by the stories that you put out. So if you killed 20, never say you killed 20. Always say you killed 20,000. Now, if the village only had 200 people in, that doesn't matter. Let them worry about that. They just need to know our God killed, allowed us to kill 20,000 people. So if you understand that, that's not critical of ancient Israel. It's just common to the practice of the time because they were pretty threatening times. So, so 
So the issue for me is why would they write that, not what did they write? Because it doesn't actually matter whether what they wrote was accurate. What matters is that you understand accurately why they wrote it, and then you can understand why God's interaction with them comes into their perceptions and understanding of life and why I think God must have been pulling his hair out, if he has hair, from time to time thinking, why are they saying that about me? Why are they writing that about me? But you see, if you understand the times, you realise that this was the case. So, so, so what I'm saying to you is that, is that the elements that bring reality to us now that were based in ancient times had to speak in a language that those in ancient times would understand what it was that was being said. So you cannot understand in reality the sacrifice of Jesus and the giving of his blood from a 21st century perspective. You cannot, you cannot, it's just not possible. And if you don't look back and see the process to it, then what you will do is you'll superimpose upon the story a 21st century understanding. Or if you're John Calvin, you superimpose upon the story a 16th century understanding. Or if you're Anselm of Canterbury, you understand, you impose upon it uh, you know, a, a, a first millennia context of the story. You see, the further we come away the more it is affected. Now, I could also say to you that this, this process has continued through history because um, for those of you who are familiar with the man called John Calvin, John Calvin was around at the time of the Reformation and out of him grew a movement called Calvinism of which most, uh, most um, uh, Baptist churches would, would adhere to that belief system. And there are several other denominations that I know in the UK that would adhere to that. And I'm not going into all that, except to say that, that um, it's a very legalistic perspective of how the gospel works. So uh, Calvin said, man is totally depraved. I mean, that's a strong word. We didn't choose... To sin, we are sinners by nature. Or in other words, you're wicked from the day that you're born. Now, now some have amended that to say not until the age of realisation, which I think is 12. And I remember, I remember Elle once saying when we were talking about this, she said, well, it would be better then to die when you're 11 years old and 11 months. So do your stuff and then die at 11 years and 11 months because then you couldn't be held accountable. I mean, these are all gymnastics to try and make the thing work and of course from that depravity he also talked about how how um, um, you know because of that we couldn't choose for ourselves and we had to be chosen by God and so that the whole thing goes on anyway cut a long story short the point is that John Calvin lived in a time in the 1500s coming into the 1600s where there was a lot of there was a lot of civil unrest in Europe and of course, we were, we were in the throes of the Reformation where you had the Protestant movement emerging from, from what had been strongly Catholicism. And so you had this conflict of religious dogma, right? What are the rules? We don't like those rules. We're going to make new rules. And um, within that, John Calvin, who was a lawyer, moved from France to Geneva because he was brought in by the local government in Geneva to sort out the problem of civil unrest and godlessness and violence in society. 
And uh, so when you understand that, you see why, why John Calvin's gospel really looks like some kind of legal contract. That these are the rules and this is what's required and, you're, and you have to do this, this, this and this. And if you do this, this, this and this, then you will, you will be delivered and free. Now, that's, that's a very poor and very brief summary of that whole subject matter. My point simply being this, that if you look at the emergence of the gospel through the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages and, and all of that, you will see that we superimpose upon the gospel um, social attitudes of the time and then we, make, we try and make that the truth. This has gone on for millennia. So, so my point is you, you have to get back before all that stuff and say, okay, for me, this is my understanding. If sacrifice and blood were understood as the commodity for the cosmic realm, then these writings are going to help us understand why that was important to them and what is the context in terms of what we understand as the Christian gospel. So, and of course that brings us to the true attributes of what we call the ungodlike God because he's not like any of those pagan gods. And it's where I see that covenant and not cleansing are at the heart of everything God has ever or will ever do. Now this is important because if you look at it from the other perspective, the ancient pagan perspective, what man needs is for God to cleanse him from his wrongdoing. So unless we are made, unless we are clean because we're wrong, we can't have anything. But, but you see, there was a deeper meaning for blood which is brought out in, in, in the scriptures in the Old Testament than the issue of cleansing. I can show you where cleansing begins to be brought into the thing, but actually it's not what it was all about in the beginning. Uh, it's also where I see a lesson called law that says, if you want to live legal and transactional, here's what that takes. So in these ancient writings in the Old Testament, we see this thing called law that says, if you want to live legal and transactionally, this is what it takes. And you're up to your eyeballs in blood and sacrifices and requirements and expectations and, and none of them lasting. So you get all that in there. So it's also the lens through which I see the humility of God and the beauty of the cross. So, so in this redemption in Jesus, I see humility. And because I see humility, I can see the beauty of the cross because there's a humility in God which we'll try and open out um, as we go along. So if you remember, in the past, we've talked about the first mention of the shedding of blood in the Bible. Now, this is by implication because if you're familiar with the first uh, three chapters of Genesis, you will be aware that it never says that when Adam and Eve ate from the tree and were aware of their nakedness, that an animal was killed and the skins taken from the animal. It never says an animal was killed. It just says that God made garments of skins. So the implication is that there was death to provide the skins. Now, some people have other perspectives on that. I have yet to be convinced on their perspectives, but, um, you know, that's why we have open dialogue. Um, but I argued with you that, that people will say that the first time the shedding of blood and sacrifice is mentioned is in Genesis chapter 2 when, when God provides garments of skins 
to cover Adam and Eve because they felt naked and ashamed and, 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 and God had to cover their sin. Well, um, there's nowhere that the Bible says that. It's, it's an imposition from a way of thinking about blood and sacrifice that is incorrect. And the other thing that's incorrect is that that's not the first time that by implication the shedding of blood is mentioned. And so this is one of my favourite parts of scripture and I'll explain why in a moment but I'll just read it rather than just um, quote from it initially. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 says, The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So, so God has an acute awareness, first of all, about aloneness. You know, aloneness is, is the lack of fellowship, it's the lack of relationship. And, um, and so the, the, the beginning of this story is that, that God sees something in Adam and he's not, God's not happy about it. So in verse 21 it says, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman for she was taken out of the man. So we already have a countercultural proposition about the role of blood and sacrifice and death. And that countercultural thing is that blood is shed not for the purpose of appeasing any presumed anger that God has. If you listen to most commentators, you would think that the whole context of blood in Scripture is appeasing God's anger, appeasing God's anger. God is so angry, his anger has to be appeased. We need the blood of Jesus to save us from that anger. But that was never the perspective or the context from the beginning. Now, of course, if you're wondering why, by implication, this is the shedding of blood, because here's the picture that's painted. Again, I don't know if it's literal or symbolic. Uh, uh, you know, I'd like to say this is absolutely literal. I don't, I don't know, but it really doesn't matter in that sense, because, like I said, you have to use things that convey a truth in the story. And the story is that, that um, Adam needed something more to fulfill him. Now, I find that interesting right at the beginning. First of all, that God having made us, we might need something more to fulfill us and that God's okay with that and that God steps into that and he's not saying, I should be enough for you. I made you. Why aren't I enough? Don't you find that interesting? God was saying, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I can see what's needed here for you to feel complete. I get it. Now, I find that fascinating because if ever there was a mark of humility... You would think that God should say, how dare you be incomplete? How dare you still have a sense of aloneness? How dare? But he doesn't. He says, I get it. I get you. So for me, from the very beginning, God's saying, I get you. I made you and I get you. And I've made you free enough in who you are as a developing person that, that actually you have something of me in you that's always looking for relationship, fulfilment in relationship and oneness. And so graciously, you've got this issue that he puts Adam to sleep, he puts the man to sleep and he removes a rib from his side. Now, of course, 
you know, by all stretch of imagination as human beings, the whole implication is that in removing the rib, Adam would bleed. So therefore, Adam sacrifices a rib and there is blood. You've got blood and sacrifice right from the beginning, but it's got nothing to do with appeasing an angry God. It's got nothing to do with paying for your wrongs or paying for your sins. So therefore, it's got something to do with something else. Do you get that? And I think the problem is we've missed the something else about the cross for too long and in doing that, we've excluded masses of people from the blessing and grace that could flow to them through what Jesus did. <clears throat> so the sacrifice was the rib. It's interesting that from that sacrifice, it wasn't that it gave strength to the gods because it says that God took that rib, whatever that rib might be deemed to mean, God took that rib and he made something. And he made something that actually was perfect for the need that had been expressed in the heart of Adam to give him fulfillment. So God made what it needed to fulfill Adam. And Eve was for Adam. Eve wasn't for you, Eve was for Adam. He made what was necessary to fulfill Adam's need. Now, it's also fascinating that when you look at the words in the Hebrew, at the beginning there, God created and God made a woman from the river, two different words. Um, the, the God created the heavens and the earth literally means God made out of nothing. That's He created out of nothing. But when it talks about him taking the rib, the word that's used there, the closest word we have in, in English is build. He built a woman. Now, I find that fascinating because I'm a... I'm a very, um, I'm a creative, imaginative person. So for me, when Jesus said, I will build my church, not I will create my church, is a wonderful parallel because God built Eve for Adam and, and God builds the church for Christ. Everything is a parallel. Everything works wonderfully when you get the right model. And of course, the other fascinating thing to me is that when Jesus was on the cross, um, the Roman centurion thrust his spear up into his side and he would thrust his spear up between the ribs here so that he could get it up into the heart and that Jesus would die because he hadn't died by asphyxiation um, and they didn't want to break his bones which again was a, a part to do with the prophecy and in Psalms but I find it fascinating that, that he's talked about as the last Adam and he is, he is wounded in his side Adam in the garden is wounded in his side. Adam gives a, a natural rib by the context of the story so that fulfillment might come. Uh, Christ gives a spiritual rib in the context of his story from which another is made that again is all about fulfillment. It's all about wholeness. It's all about completeness. It's all about fullness. So the rib being removed from Adam from which Eve was made was not an appeasement for anger nor a means, a means to please the gods, but a means through which something new came into being. Value was imparted, and intimate loving relationship was the outcome. So I have to say, if I'm going to take that model and not corrupt it with pagan thinking, that whatever was happening on the cross, value, uh, something new was coming into being, value was imparted, and intimate loving relationship was the outcome. Now that to me far better explains the gospel 
than the idea of God being very ticked and then only being slightly ticked because now we have Jesus to stand between God and us who still wants to get at us, but Jesus intercedes for us. And so, you know, God still needs to kill us because we're still really bad, but thank God while ever Jesus stands in the middle, he can't get to us. I mean, just talk about the distortion of truth. It was also about the making of two which should be counted as one. This oneness being a principle which will carry on through the whole narrative and be at the core of Jesus' message. What we have in that early part of the Bible story is something called covenant, okay? It's something called covenant. Now, in terms of the commodity of, of, of blood, um, what's interesting is that in the ancient world, uh, the greatest commodity for your commitment to a promise, to the, source, to, the, to, the, to the safety and blessing of another was blood. So, you know, there were no fist bumps, there were no high fives. Um, it had to be a lot more serious than a fist bump. Okay, I'm with you, we've got this fist bump. Anybody that was serious back in that culture understood that blood was the currency of promise. If you really, really, really were going to make a promise that you would embrace somebody, stand by them, hold them, be at one with them, defend them, protect them, that everything that you had was theirs and everything they had was yours, you had to do it with blood. Now that might seem alien to us today, but then the Bible's not written in today's language. It's trying to convey this understanding of something that was going on. So, so... If we jump to my much-taught message from Genesis 15, we see the exact same principles as this one with the blood and the rib and the sacrifice enacted again. It's the story of where, um, you know, God has this conversation with Abraham and Abraham has to take five elements of sacrifice, bull, a young goat, etc., etc., down to two pigeons and uh, he knows exactly what to do. He has to divide the carcasses in half and create a, what is basically a passageway between the divided carcasses of the animals. Now, of course, to us, that's abhorrent and you finish up in jail for doing that now. But uh, you've got to think back then, this wasn't, this wasn't, um, it wasn't an idea of butchery. It was, it was an ingrained concept that said, without blood being involved here, nobody's serious. Right? So it wasn't like, oh, let's just find a few animals and cut them up, it'd be fun. And let's kind of fist bump as we go through. No, it was the issue that, that, that they needed a way to, to proclaim utter seriousness in their commitment. And that way was to use blood. So, of course, in the story of Abraham, they take the carcasses, they divide the carcasses. And uh, normally what would happen is you would walk through the blood in the, in the middle of the carcasses with the person you were making covenant with. And you would, you would do several things in this covenant, which I'm, I'm not going to bring them all to you today, but there were nine things that you would essentially do when you made these kind of covenants. But what you would do as you walk through, you would say, let it happen to me as has happened to these animals if I fail to keep the covenant that I've made with you this day. And it's called a blood, a blood covenant for good reasons. And of course, in our story, which I've talked about many times, when it came time to walk between the carcasses, God puts Abraham to sleep. 
And when Abraham wakes up, God's already walked through the carcasses. And so you have this amazing story that, that, that in that place of blood, God doesn't ask anything of Abraham. God only asks something of himself. And so God doesn't ask Abraham, in order for you to be one with me, you have to promise me that X, Y, and Z. He says, if I bring you into the equation, this is going to fail at the first stop. So here's the deal. I'll tell you what, I'll put you to sleep and I'll go through on my own. The, the essence of that being that, that, that God makes a covenant with himself or with the commodity of blood, which was the understood greatest commodity of the time, God makes a promise to himself. The promise he makes is that he will always love, he will always bless, he will always care for, he will always be one with Abraham. What was Abraham's part in the deal? It wasn't in the making of the deal. It was a, it was a, it was a unilateral covenant that God made with himself. I promise myself and you will be the beneficiary of the promises I made to myself. So God's role, the promiser, the sacrificer, the one with the blood. Abraham's role, beneficiary. Wisdom. Don't try and involve yourself in the bit that God does. Just be the beneficiary of what God has done. And live in the fullness of knowing that now that relationship can never be broken ever by anything. Yeah, but why if I fail? Well, it can't be broken because God made a promise to himself. You, you didn't make it, you can't break it. So somehow God in that moment was saying, Abraham, to ensure that what I desire for you, which is for you to be in relationship with me and live in the fullness of relationship and who I am, I will just promise myself, and if you can just accept that and live in that, you will forever live in the benefits of that covenant that I made with myself of which you are the beneficiary. Now, notice something. There is no appeasement involved. God was not saying, well, you're just so bad, Abraham, that in order for this to happen, we have to make these sacrifices so that first of all, your sins can be paid for. Because God would be saying, first of all, you, you, I've got to appease my own anger. First of all, I've got to make myself okay. First of all, I've got to change how I see you. There is no mention of that because it's not part of it. What happens is that he makes this promise without including Abraham and there is no appeasement involved because God's not angry. There is inclusion and impartation but no participation other than preparation. Or in other words, all Abraham's part was, if you can just prepare for this to happen, I'll take care of the rest. I found it interesting that then we have this story of this guy called John the Baptist. And his message is not repent. People have said John came preaching repentance. He was never told to come preaching repentance. You won't find anywhere in the prophecies about John that he was told to come preaching repentance. He was told to prepare the way of the Lord, to make a straight way for him, to fill the valleys and bring low the mountains. Or in other words, John, just move all the obstacles out of the way and invariably and inevitably Jesus will come. 
If you can just get those little obstacles, how you feel about the valleys, how you feel about the mountains, what you feel about the crooked path of your life, if, if you can just get those out of the way in your thinking, he will come. Now, of course, looking back and superimposing upon it Jewish thinking and religious thinking, we say John came preaching repentance. John came to tell people how bad they were. He was never told to do that. And then you wonder why he died prematurely. Wonder why he got his head cut off by Herod. Because it's none of his business to go around telling people, you shouldn't be living like that, you shouldn't be doing that. Oh, it's not, you know, Jesus, Jesus frowns on that. Wasn't his, his business was to prepare the way of the Lord. Our business is to prepare the way of the Lord to say, there is a covenant. We are the beneficiaries. Just prepare your heart to receive it. Just open your heart to receive it. Just be in the place you should be, which is here. Be present in the moment and receive it. Prepare the way. So, one more thing on that. We become experientially the beneficiaries of something done for us, not by us. So, having said all that, I hope there's a little understanding there and I haven't confused you too much. Through a distorted lens, blood equals appeasement. And so I propose to you that mostly in the church, and I would include myself for most of my life in this, I have had a distorted lens because blood equaled appeasement. Because I thought the whole story was rooted in Adam and Eve did wrong, God was ashamed of Adam and Eve, so God had to kill an animal to provide skins to cover their nakedness because God couldn't look on their nakedness. Give me a break. I mean, first of all, there is no evidence whatsoever in Genesis that God turned his back on humanity. Not a single scrap, not one moment, not one second. That's utter nonsense. And secondly, the garments that he did provide were not for his benefit, they were for Adam and Eve's benefit. God wasn't ashamed of them, they were ashamed of themselves. He wasn't bothered about their nakedness. They were bothered about their vulnerability in nakedness. So God in his kindness wasn't covering their sin. He was giving them a way to cover their shame. And I've always appreciated that about God, that when I felt ashamed about me, he find ways to, to cover my shame, to ways that I can not have to kind of be in the open with my own shame. You see, you see, what God did then was never about changing how he saw Adam and Eve. It's only ever been about, even when Adam and Eve had done stupid, how they saw him. And how should they see him? They should see him as the one who still loves them, hasn't changed a lick, was still conscious of their need, and was providing for that need so they felt okay about themselves. Yeah. If there is a context of quote, atonement or covering, and we could get into that whole thing that that is another distorted principle, just dreadfully, dreadfully, dreadfully distorted. There's mischief all around it. You can ask me what I mean by that if you like. Even in the Old Testament story, which Chris is more informed about this than me, but it's very much a truth. In the Old Testament story, the atonement story talks about two goats, one that would be killed and sacrificed and its blood taken into the holy place of the tabernacle, the other one that the priest would lay his hands on and speak all the sins of the people over. And then it says, and he'll be led out into the, the desert and he is a scapegoat. He will be a scapegoat. The word scapegoat's nowhere in there. The word that's in there, and Chris will, would tell you about this and might mention it at some point, 
the word that's in there is the word Azazel. Azazel, in ancient pagan thinking, was a demon who, 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 was, who fell from heaven and who lived in the wilderness, lived in the desert. And actually what would happen, and you can read this in various things like Zoroastrianism, that the sacrifice would be taken out to give to Azazel to appease him so that he wouldn't bother the people. So you were paying that to Azazel. Now, you can see why the writers of the, the translators of the Old Testament would say, let's not put that in because that makes this all messed up. And then we've got to explain why we're taking a goat out to give to a demon. So we'll put the word scapegoat. Mischief. Mischief. And you can check me out on that. See if I'm, you might, so this is all very complicated. I apologise because religion has made it more complicated than it ought to be. And uh, anyway, why was I talking about that? Oh, torment. Yeah, it was, was all about, when we look through the distorted lens, you see, we, we think it's all about, about how God you know, how God sees us and dealing with how God sees us and covering when, when God's always seen as the same. You know, I love what, the, what David wrote in the Psalms. He says, he remembers that we're but dust, or in other words, he's not, he knows exactly what they're like and still has compassion on us, still sends his love towards us, still is uncompromising in his grace. So when we look through a distorted lens, we can only ever see blood as representing appeasement but that comes from pagan thinking. Now, I know some of you would say, well, how do you explain all this Old Testament sacrifices and stuff? Well, in, 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 in half a minute at most, I believe that was a lesson to show that when you try to do this thing in the context of a, a, a legal contractual thing, what it requires is something you don't want to get involved with. I, I, I've said from the beginning, I, I believe the law was allowed by God to show people how they didn't want to live, not how they should live. But again, that's another story. I'm not going there. Through a distorted lens, blood equals appeasement. But through a pure lens, blood always equals covenant. The rib was a covenant. It's a promise. I'm going to take this out while you're asleep and I'm going to promise myself that I'll make for you the most amazing thing that if you will receive it will be the thing that you need in fulfilment to make you whole, to make you complete. To where two become one. So blood was considered the only guarantee of an unbreakable promise. In the ancient world, that was it. Blood was the was considered the only guarantee of an unbreakable promise. So as you see the story emerge through the Old Testament, and you see it arrive at Jesus at the end of what we understand as the Old Testament period, can you understand then why, if blood was considered the only guarantee of an unbreakable promise, the cross was essential? Not to show a non-violent response to a violent people, but to scream out to the world and to scream out to all the ages to come that what was happening in that moment was an unbreakable promise, an unbreakable covenant. God's saying to people about who we are and who we, he's made us to be and how we're accepted, speaking of that and saying this can't be broken. It was not primarily a legal transaction. Now the problem is, in our modern parlance, when we use the word covenant, we think legal. 
You know, so in, 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 you know, if there is a, a covenant on a house, it's a legal document and it's all to do with, it's all to do with, um, with legalities. When, when in the context of ancient culture, covenant was not primarily to do with anything legal, it was to do with a relational declaration of oneness. So if we made a covenant, we were not making a legal transaction. We were actually making a relational declaration of oneness. You know, se- several of the things, if you want to go up and look at, on, online at what were the nine elements of blood covenants, you'll find that there are several things. For example, the first thing that you would do is exchange coats with the person. You would exchange your coat, your garment. Because in those days, what you wore is who you were. You could tell a beggar by what he wore. You could tell a rich man by what he wore. Which is why Jesus' garment, they exchanged for lots and wouldn't tear it because actually the colour he was wearing was, was the colour that a king would wear because he is the king of kings. And so, all of, so when you exchange garments, you were saying, all that I am, I give to you. And she was saying, all that I am, I give to you. So there was an exchange that said, that said, everything about me, I give for you. And the other person was saying, everything about me, I give for you. Now, can you see why God made a promise to himself? Everything I give, everything I am, I give to me, so that I can be to you everything that you could never be to yourself, and so that you can be who you are supposed to be, being freed from all that pressure of having to perform and do so, so that's one of the things we did. The second thing that they would do is they would exchange belts. Now, you know, again, you look from our culture and think, well, that's daft, isn't it? But the belt was symbolic of where you carried your money, where you carried your weapon, where you carried your sword, where you carried your dagger. And it was a sign that said, I will protect you as if you were me. And you will protect me as if I was you. You will be safe, your life will be safe in my hands and I believe my life will be safe in your hands. So in this transaction what was happening was that there was a transference that's saying your life is safe with me, right? I will protect you, I will keep you. So, so all these elements that happened in covenant were not about legal transactional things, they were actually about relational declarations of oneness, you and I are one. So for me, if we're going to look at the cross and we look at it through the old pagan concept, all we can see is appeasement. And in the context of that appeasement, we see simply a legal transaction. And then we translate the gospel as a legal transaction. You were a sinner, you owed a debt. Now again, there's all these issues of the debt to God, was the debt to the devil? What do we mean by a debt? Why should I owe a debt to anybody? And if, if, if sin was in me because I was created and there's non-righteous, then how come I'm being held responsible for something that was in me? And if it was Adam's fault, why am I getting the blame? And all this kind of stuff starts to come through and come out in the context because we start to think of it as a legal transaction. And so... So God then becomes the judge, not the father. And when God becomes the judge, not the father, he has to hear the case. And when he hears the case, there has to be an accusation. And when there's an accusation, there has to be 
that's proved there has to be condemnation and when there's condemnation there has to be sentencing and when there's sentencing there has to be punishment and the punishment must fit the crime. So if you're totally depraved, the only punishment to fit your crime is eternal conscious torment forever and ever and ever because you can't be let anywhere near polluting God's heaven. You see how the whole thing became a legal legal transaction that, that, that because we don't understand, at the moment you think blood appeasement, that's where everything begins to go. But when you think blood of covenant, you think, okay, so the deal is that God, Jesus wasn't appeasing an angry God when he died on the cross. What he was doing is saying, I am making with you, I am showing you the understanding that by the, by the, by the very currency that you understand to be the highest currency of promise, that I am showing you that I promise myself. And God was in Christ promising himself, what? That he would reconcile the world to himself. Reconcile the world to himself. And so now he has obligated himself, not to a judgment, but to a promise. Not, not to punishing the world, but saving the world. Not to turning his back on humanity, but turning humanity's face towards him so that we could see him for who he truly is. So the issue is, if you don't start at the right place and if you allow this pagan interruption to your thinking, you can only ever see that the blood of the cross was a vicious and violent and terrible thing or it was the thing for the legal transaction that then what we say is, how do we become part of that well, you have to say the sinner's prayer. You have to confess that you're a sinner. You have to ask Jesus into your heart. And if you do that, you're saved. And if you don't do that, you're damned. And, and so then there's all the issue of what about the people in foreign countries who don't even know who Jesus is? And, and, and what about the person who dies before they have a chance to do that? What about the dying thief who didn't pray the sinner's prayer? Where is he now? All kinds of problems. Now, there may be irrelevance in some context for us to make some kind of personal, physical, verbal commitment, statement, whatever. I have no problem with that. But to say that this thing hinges on something so volatile as me saying certain words in a certain way, in a certain attitude, is to say that God actually is not the one who is in control of salvation in the world. I am the one who is in control of it. It means that my attitude and heart are greater than his attitude and heart. It means I'm stronger than him. Now, I don't believe that God imposes himself upon us, but what I do believe is that we have to get out of this sense of blood being appeasement and therefore it becoming the legal transaction and understand that what was happening on the cross was not a legal transaction, it was a relational declaration of oneness. God promising himself and we become the beneficiary of which the world should be incredibly happy. So just bringing this to a close, therefore to me, Jesus' death, sacrifice and blood was more about covenant than cleansing. Now, I know you can bring scriptures to me and say, you know, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And, and I would say, yes, it does. But that was not the primary purpose of the cross. That's a, that's a benefit of the cross, right? Not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is the covenant that says, I promise you, 
A benefit of that is that there is a, a process of things being cleansed in me that might be good to have them cleansed. It was and is the most valuable commodity for the ancients, and I could argue that it is today, that blood of Jesus. So Jesus didn't die and rise again to prove that he was God. He did it to show in the sincerest of human terms that God has made a promise with himself that he will never break, that we were brought out from him, that we have been made by him, and that we are totally one with him. And one could argue that in the end, it all comes down to a matter of faith, and I would agree. And this is where I choose to put my faith. This, this is my faith in the work of the cross. This is what I believe, and I am a beneficiary of the work of the cross. In all my weakness still, in all my failures, in all my insecurities, in all my struggles, a beneficiary of the cross. It's not dependent upon me. It's not some legal transaction into which I must pay to get something out. It simply pours over me because it's a covenant, it's a promise, and the thing in, in, in history that was the greatest commodity to prove the validity of a promise is what was used at the cross in the blood of Jesus. So whatever reality do you attach to the man Jesus, one cannot deny the fact that Jesus had singularly, has singularly had more impact on the lives of people in our world than any other person who has ever lived. And I believe we have to draw on picture and type and history and culture to give us a framework for understanding these things. And this is what I see in that framework that I've shared for you tonight. I do believe that Christ died, was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, but not according to the New Testament scriptures. Because <laughs> they weren't even written and nobody knew them at the time. Now that's not to say that the New Testament scriptures are without great value because they have immense value. They are tremendous pieces of literature and truth and inspiration and spiritual help. But when it talks about that, I believe according to the scripture. That's why I say when I understand what happened in the, in, in the story of the garden and what happened in the story of Abraham, it helps me to understand that the blood of the cross was not primarily about cleansing. It was about covenant. And when it's about covenant, it's about relationship. And when it's about relationship, it's about oneness. And when it's about oneness, it's because you've been brought in. And when you've been brought in, you become a beneficiary. So our gospel is that people are beneficiaries of a covenant that was made with them that was made in the most significant of commodities the world has ever been able to express for covenants and it was done with that the precious blood of Jesus as the Bible calls so that we can say amen yes. so for me amen. that's why Jesus Anybody got the odd question you'd like to ask before we depart? You're welcome to do so. I would also say to Chris, if it interferes with anything she wants to say next week, just to say, I'm dealing with that next week. Anybody got a question or was it so incredibly brilliant and insightful that... Yeah, that's a good. So Dave asks, what's the relevance of the sacrificial lamb? Now that, that's, a, um, that's a very condensed question, a very broad question in the sense that I could ask which sacrificial lamb. Um, 
the, the, the most important of the sacrificial lambs to me is the Passover lamb. Um, because that's the one where you have very specific instruction about a lamb for a household. Now, um, when you get into the, the old Jewish law, of course, you've got multiple sacrifices. And um, the thing is, even the New Testament says that, that with, with the blood of bulls and goats, you were not pleased. So it's like fascinates me that God told them, kill these bulls and goats. And then we're told that God wasn't pleased. Or in other words, they were, never, they were never to please God. They were only ever to give us a lesson about when you go down the legal transactional route, here's what it takes. You will, you will give your blood to try and make the grade. Sacrificial lamb, um, I believe the greatest image and the one when Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is drawn from the Passover lamb and the interesting thing with the Passover lamb is that in the story of the Jewish Passover from which that sacrificial lamb image comes, there is also no mention of the sacrifice being as a payment of, of sin or for the appeasement of the anger of God. So, so in that Passover sacrifice, what we have is nothing that's to do with appeasement, um, nothing that's to do with, it never mentions this is for the sins of the people. It never mentions forgiveness, but they have, to, they have to sacrifice the lamb. What does the lamb do? The lamb, in its symbolism, it separates them from the process of death that is happening in the land. So the lamb delivers them from, from death. Now, again, you could say, well, this is Egypt. This is the story of the plagues in Egypt. And of course, the last plague was the firstborn was to die. And Moses was told, tell the people to take a, a, a pure lamb and to test the lamb. And, and then you sacrifice the lamb for a household. And then you put the blood on the doorpost and on the, on the lintel of the door. And when, the, when death comes, when he sees the blood, I will pass over you. Um, for me, the issue there was that there was something in that sacrificial lamb whose context was not to do with sin but was to do with death that in the innocence of that lamb death was to be destroyed which is why for me the resurrection is so important in the story of Jesus because what the resurrection says is that death is ended now that opens up a whole scenario because you could say but people still die then my question would be if, if that was to deal with death and people still die, what do we talk about? People would say, well, spiritual death. That's a whole story again that has all kinds of complexities and problems with it. I would say it's because we've become too focused on death as a thing, right? Death is your heart stops, you know, your organs shut down, uh, you know, your brain shuts down and you're dead. Um, I, don't, I don't think that that's the biblical understanding of death. Again, if you go back to the very beginning, the word was to Adam about the tree. It, for if you eat of the tree, in eating of the tree, is, is the literal Hebrew, in dying you will die. Which like means what? In dying you will die. It, it really meant that, that there is something in there that, that is a... Every degree of separation from the flow of life is a degree of death. So everything that separates us from total life 
is the degree of death in our lives. So death is not just the stop breathing thing, because again, I think that was actually a, a gift of grace to humanity. Um, you know, who wants to live forever in the context of human life? You know, it's like... But I believe it, it dealt with the issue that, um, that in our lives we, we suffer death, but not death in the sense of we close our eyes and go, but anything that's not alive is dead. Anything that's not fully alive has death within it. And I believe then, my context, sorry for the long answer, Dave. Yeah, yeah. So my, my view is that the context of that is that God wants us to be fully alive. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life in all its fullness, which means I've come that you might be fully alive. So I believe part of that issue of the sacrificial lamb was to deal a blow to the things that keep us from being fully alive, because God wants us to be fully alive. That, that's, that's my context on it, Dave. And then, of course, Jesus dies at Passover. Yeah, which is yeah. Yeah, that's another point that, you know, the day that Jesus dies is the day of, that the Passover lamb is being sacrificed. Therefore, whatever the Passover lamb was, Jesus is also. So if the Passover lamb for Israel in Egypt wasn't about their sin primarily, then the Passover lamb in Jesus is not about our sin primarily. If the Passover lamb back then was about freeing them from death so they could be fully alive, breaking the bondage of all slavery and everything that held them captive, then what Jesus did is more to do with breaking slavery and bondage and the things that hold us captive. So that's where I believe that in the cross there is what we would have termed deliverance and freedom. There's the breaking of chains. There's the, there's the freeing from slavery. When we understand and embrace it and become fully alive, we also become fully free. So that's, that's when we talk about Jesus as being the Lamb of God. Yeah. That's the context, Dave. And like I say, it, you know, he starts his ministry with John saying, Behold the Lamb of God. And he finishes it by dying on the Passover day when, when the lamb was being slain across Israel. So that, that's the lamb that we locate to. It's not like some people would teach who've got the legalistic view that, that Jesus was our atoning sacrifice because again, well, if we talk to you about that, you see all kinds of problems. Um, all kinds of problems. And like I said, the mischief is that that word's been introduced even to the New Testament when it shouldn't be there. Yeah. That it hinges on that concept that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, the atonement for the sins of men. Yeah, it, it hinges. Yeah, it does hinge on him being the lamb, but it doesn't hinge on him being an atonement sacrifice. That, that, yeah. That's where it comes Yeah. Yeah, it's that what's happened in all that is, is that. Is yeah, what has happened is because because in in Christianity we have failed to recognise that we have been freed from the law through the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the fulfilment of the law. We have tried to mix those two things together, and so when we do that, we've tried to mix the sacrifices together. So the Passover was before the law was ever given, because that was the pure understanding of the deliverance from bondage and captivity and death were going to be broken. We were going to be set free. 
And then we, we mingle into that the legalist, legal sacrifices of the law and then we finish up with Jesus being all of those things when the truth is he isn't. He is separate to because we owed nothing under the law. We had nothing to pay to the law. You and I were never under the law anyway because we weren't Jews in the wilderness. And we've got enough scripture even in the New Testament to say that we were free from the law and the law does not affect us. But when you combine those things, it's because we desperately need this idea of God being appeased and the Passover sacrifice doesn't give us that opportunity. So we try and distort it and put something else in to say, oh no, no, then we, you know, God is angry, so, so he must also be the atoning sacrifice, which was all to do with paying for the sins of the people and, as we said, taking one goat out into the desert and killing another goat. And that, that's too big a story, but it's fascinating, really fascinating. So are we doing any, any more for any more? Okay, well, I hope that's been helpful to you. Um, that's, that's my belief. That's my, that's my conviction. Um, there are others who, who see the picture a little differently. And, uh, you know, that, that's okay. We're not the, we're not the thought police. Um, so th- this is me. So I, I, hope, I hope you can see. And for me, it's the most blessed thing if... If Jesus says his, his blood is all about covenant, not about cleansing, that to me is like just the greatest thing, just, just amazing. And then it truly is finished. It truly means it is finished. And we enter into that finished work. So be blessed. We love you. Thanks for turning out. Really appreciate it lots. And uh, we'll see you on Sunday, hopefully. Okay, we're done. <laughs>